Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. Today, we're talking about Jewish desserts. So we decided to release this bonus episode in conjunction with Rosh Hashanah, when apples and honey are emblematic of the hope for a sweet new year. Leah Koenig is a food writer who specializes in taking traditional Jewish recipes and bringing them into the 21st century. She's written five cookbooks, including today's featured book, The Little Book of Jewish Sweets. She joined us in August 2019 to talk about her career, her approach to recipe development, and the role that sweets play in Jewish traditions. Here's Leah Koenig and The Little Book of Jewish Sweets. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming and to Book Larder for hosting me and to everyone who helped to make the event happen. As a cookbook author and food writer, bookstores like this are basically heaven. (laughs) I'm sure you understand the feeling. So it's just an honor and a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my work and kind of how I got into it and a little bit about my my books. And then I'll end the talk with a little bit about this particular book. So I'm a a food writer and a cookbook author, and I've been doing it for about 10 years now. If you had asked me when I was, you know, 25 even, certainly when I was a child, if I was going to be a food writer, let alone someone who focuses solely almost on Jewish cuisine, I would probably just look at you like, what are you talking about? Is that even a job? (laughs) I've been lucky enough to sort of have my professional career dovetail with the rise of of food writing as a profession. And I fell into it the way I think most people, I think now people try to be food writers and go to school to be food writers. But when I was doing this 10, 15 years ago, it was was not quite, it was not quite a job yet. (laughs) It was starting to be a job. So like most food writers, I was a picky eater. No, I don't think that's actually true, but I was. <laughs> but my mother was a fantastic cook and, you know, she cooked all the time. I grew up in the 1980s, which was the time of Lunchables and um, Gushers, fruit snacks, both of which I love. But my mom was a, she went to the farmer's market and we never had pancake syrup. We always had maple syrup. So I definitely got the foundations of my love of food from her. However, I basically ate noodles and butter for like the first eight years of my life. And I didn't eat pizza until I was 15. And then I made up for lost time very quickly on that. <laughs> but the, the early foundations were there. And it was really in college. Uh, I went to Middlebury College in, in Vermont and I lived in a, a hippie co-op. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> who, raise your hand if you lived in a hippie co-op ever. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> so the thing about... Hippie co-ops is you cook for yourselves and your your housemates. We had 17 people living in the house. It was, um, you know, dirty a dirty scene. <laughs> so I, I really learned to kind of cook for a crowd before um, learning to cook for just one or two people. Um, but it was really the, the foundation of where I blossomed both as an eater and as a cook. And because it was... Vermont in the early 2000s. It was just pre-Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma book, but you know that was all in the works and sustainable cuisine and food and you know eating farm to table and all of that was really just getting going. And that was kind of my my in to to food. And after college, I went the nonprofit route. I worked for um, a Jewish environmental nonprofit. That is a thing <laughs> um, called Hazon, and I ran like their national CSA program that 
would partner synagogues and farmers, and the, the synagogue would be like the drop-off site for the produce, and then they would do educational stuff around, around it. So I did that for a long time. And at a certain point, I realized that the nonprofit life was not for me <laughs> and that I really wanted to be writing, which was uh, a passion of mine. So I quit. I was, I think, 25 or 26 and start, I got an internship, unpaid internship at Sever uh, in New York City, where I, I was living and still live. Yeah, that was kind of how it started. And at the beginning, I did not focus on just Jewish food. I focused on, you know, making money as a writer. So I was kind of a generalist. But, you know, the holidays would roll around. And um, I started to sort of wonder about the dishes that my mom had made growing up, about, you know, hamantashen on um, Purim or latkes on Hanukkah or brisket on Rosh Hashanah. And I, I've never made them. So, you know, I started to kind of teach myself how to make them um, and started to, more importantly, learn the stories behind them. Um, I actually, I'm, I have a friend who uh, says, food without stories is just calories. <laughs> and <laughs> that resonated really deeply with me because I, I find that when you're sitting around the table with people, the food can be absolutely delicious and you can have a terrible meal. Um, and it's really when you kind of connect with one another, but also connect with um, the food, the history behind the food that you really get the full meal. So I started writing, I started publishing recipes way before I had any right to do that. Uh, <laughs> thanks internet for having those still out there in the world when I wish I could get rid of some of them. Kind of went from there and you know, I got my first book project and then wrote Modern Jewish Cooking, which came out in 2015. That is, was sort of my, the first book I was really, really proud of. Eventually I was sort of like, okay, this is my shtick. This is my thing. I'm a, I'm a, I write about Jewish food. I'm not going to be ashamed that I'm sort of pigeonholed in this, in this realm because Jewish food actually has so much history and culture to explore. And so when I'm, when I'm writing books, I really focus on two different things. So the first is taking traditional dishes that maybe people grew up eating but didn't necessarily have a positive relationship with. Um, there's a lot of jokes about Jewish cuisine being heavy, being well, at least the Eastern European side of Jewish food, being heavy, being greasy, being bland, being beige, being you know boring. So taking those, those traditional dishes, I think that's all not true, by the way, but and finding ways to modernize them for the 21st century. So, you know, using a lot of fresh produce, honoring the farmer's market, um, adding things like lemon zest to matzo balls, or, you know, things to kind of like brighten up the flavor um, of the dishes that are, that are familiar, and, but still keeping them familiar, but also a little bit more exciting. So that's kind of one, one side of my food and my books. And the other side is to really explore the global side of Jewish cuisine. Jewish food is often considered, maybe not here in Seattle where there's a large Sephardic community, but Jewish food is often thought of through the lens of Eastern Europe in, in America. Um, and that's because about 80% of Jews in America do come from you know, Eastern or Central European backgrounds. But I like to joke that aside from Antarctica, Jews have basically lived and cooked everywhere in the world throughout history. So for me, the, the story of Jewish food is really a global story. And, you know, there's Jews cooking in Mexico City, in Ethiopia, in India, in Morocco, in uh, Turkey, in um, Greece. So I really try to explore all the corners and celebrate the fact that Jewish cuisine is so much more than, than matzo balls. And one story I like to tell about that is um, 
there's a woman named Bichi Barhani. Um, she's an Ethiopian Jew uh, who in, I think, when she was about four years old, walked from Ethiopia to Sudan with her family and was airlifted to Israel, which was, um, there was a big uh, movement in the 80s and 90s of, of moving Ethiopian Jews to, to Israel. So she, you know, grew up in Israel, but her family's cuisines were, were, were Ethiopian, traditional Ethiopian dishes. She moved to New York and she started an organization for a national Ethiopian Jewish organization. And I was connected with her for a story about Ethiopian Jewish food. And so she invited me over to her house in Harlem and she was cooking and she was making a dish called Doro Wat, which most folks who know Ethiopian cuisine have probably had. It's a, like kind of a slow cooked chicken dish with egg and berberi, which is the kind of fiery um, spice that is a, a huge part of Ethiopian cuisine. So this was a dish that I had never eaten. I had never, certainly never made, but she was in her kitchen. Her two adorable little children were running around. It was Friday afternoon, so the, the, the Sabbath, Shabbat, was approaching. And, you know, she was simmering onions. Uh, hers had ginger in them, which, you know, mine typically wouldn't, uh, the foods that I was more familiar with. But even though the dish was totally unfamiliar to me, I felt like I was at home. Um, and it felt so comforting and so familiar in that it was about to be served for Shabbat dinner. And that was, for me, a very clarifying moment that even though Jewish cuisine does span the entire globe, it also, there is something that kind of binds it all together. There is a through line throughout the cuisine. So anyways, that's, that's what I really try to do with my books is to kind of explore all of that. So this book, The Little Book of Jewish Sweets, is the third in a series. The first book is The Little Book of Jewish Appetizers, which is, you know, noshes and the before foods, all the things, all the, all the things you would eat before the main meal. And the second book is Little Book of Jewish Feasts, which is, you know, main dishes, mostly for holidays, um, also with a very global bent. Try, it's trying to capture the world of Jewish cuisine in 25 recipes is actually really hard, but that's, that's the goal. And then for understandable reasons, the third book is the dessert book, the, the end of the meal. And the idea with all of the books is they're kind of like one cookbook that's broken up into three parts so you can have it a la carte. Like if you don't really care about appetizers, you can just get the, get the dessert book or whatever. Or you can collect all three, as they say. I just am so pleased with how they turned out because I think that they they kind of serve as like little little morsels of Jewish cuisine. If, if it's not a cuisine you're familiar with, it's a good place to start. I don't want to talk for too long, but I wanted to read the introduction of this book because I think it gives a sense not only of the book, but kind of of what I, what I try to do. From the apples that get dipped into honey on Rosh Hashanah to the cinnamon and allspice that perfume Sephardi stews, sweetness is woven into the fabric of Jewish cuisine. Like all food traditions that come bound up with ritual and family, Jewish home cooking is driven by a desire not just to nourish, but also to inspire and delight those around the table. And what could be more delightful than closing a meal with a slice of almond-scented babka, a nutty syrup-drenched square of baklava, or a fudgy sliver of sesame halva? By the way, halva is super easy to make. I had no idea. If you like to eat it and you only eat joiva, because that's what's, all, that's what's available, skip the joiva and make your own. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Throughout history, Jewish communities have been deeply in involved in the business of sweets. Sephardi Jewish merchants in Europe and the Middle East traded extensively for centuries in sugar and vanilla. 
and during the 17th century, Jewish craftsmen were central to the establishment of France's chocolate industry. So much so that there's actually a book like all about Jews and chocolate that explores the, the role that, um, that French Jews played in, uh, in, the, in the chocolate industry. Later, pastry making became a common profession for the Jews of Central Europe, yielding one of the region's most iconic confections. Does anyone know what it is? Yes, the Sacre Torte, which is a delicious sort of chocolate and apricot decadent cake. Although not a Jewish dessert per se, the decadent, oh, decadent chocolate cake, clearly, (laughs) was developed in the 1830s by Jewish baker Franz Sacher. It is understandable then how deeply important the dessert course has become to Jewish life. Even during moments of hardship, Jewish communities around the world have found ways to incorporate sweetness. Take hamantaschen, the poppy seed or jam-filled cookie eaten by Ashkenazi Jews on Purim. The pastry's triangle shape is designed to mimic the hat or the pocket. Technically, it's the pocket if you're going linguistically, but a lot of people now say the hat. Of the Purim story, reviled villain Haman or Haman. On Rosh Hashanah, Tuscan Jews traditionally eat long, thin, honey walnut cookies called sfrati, which resemble the sticks once used to drive out Jewish families during periods of expulsion. It's a delightful little memory (laughs) in a cookie. (laughs) There's actually this amazing tradition within Jewish cuisine of eating the enemy or of like finding revenge through food, which is, I find, totally fascinating. (laughs) Meanwhile, the haroset on the Passover Seder plate employs the jammy fruit and nut paste to recall the mortar used by the enslaved Israelites in ancient Egypt. In each case, the harshness of these unpleasant stories and memories gets dusted over with sugar. And those eating the desserts get to have the last laugh over history and last bite. Of course, most of the global Jewish dessert canon is focused not on sadness, but on celebration and connection. There are holiday favorites like the rosewater-scented stuffed dates that Moroccan Jews serve at the end of Passover, the bimuelos, which are like rustic donuts, that Sephardi Jews eat during Hanukkah, and the majestic honey and apple cakes that Ashkenazi Jews favor on Rosh Hashanah. Then there are everyday sweets, black and white cookies from the Jewish bakery case. Um, My friend Gabriella just wrote an amazing piece about how black and white cookies are actually really not that good, but but everyone loves them anyway, (laughs) Um, how they're just kind of sweet. But she used the recipe from my book to, as like the counterpoint because the one the ones in the book are they're mocha, so they have that little bit of like bitterness from the from the coffee. So I was like, thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> so everyday Jewish sweets, black and white cookies from the Jewish bakery case, Sephardi rice pudding dolloped with marmalade, and the tender Hungarian poppy seed roll makosh, which is best shared among friends with cups of tea. On Rosh Hashanah, the following blessing is traditionally recited before eating apples with honey. And Forgive the bit of religiosity here. The blessing is, may it be your will, eternal our God, to renew us for a good and sweet year. So I like to think of this New Year's invocation as something of a mantra for this cookbook. Life is uncertain after all, but the satisfaction that comes with serving and enjoying a great dessert is a comforting constant. My hope is that longtime baking mavens and novices alike will be inspired to explore the Jewish tradition's sweet side and share a little bit of that sweetness with those they love. So that is the introduction for the book. Throughout the book, I try, you know, to, again, like share a little bit of the history of of the dishes. So, yeah, so that's a little introduction to me and to the books. And I would love to open it up to questions. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about how you did like global research? How you pulled in recipes from different communities around the world? Totally. Thank you for asking that. I have a couple of different ways that I research. Um, Obviously, the Internet is a great place to, to start. 
Um, I will often do things like type in Morocco Jewish Hanukkah and like see what comes up and then, you know, find dishes, many of which I have never heard of before and kind of put them on the list and then continue to research from there. So that's kind of one starting point. I quadrupled recently in the, over the last couple of years, my my own cookbook collection. I found, you know, an amazing book. I keep mentioning Greece because it's it's on the mind, but I found an amazing book from the 1980s called like the Jewish foods of Greece. And so I, you know, I read through that and many, many others. Like the, there's, I have a, a book um, of the Jews of Cochin, India and their cuisine. And so, you know, I'm just hugely indebted indebted to the scholarship that um, people have put into to these books. And I obviously don't take the recipes, but I, I read through them for, um, for ideas and to make sure I'm not missing anything. I also have a lot of friends who come from different communities. So I'll ask like my friend Neely, who is Persian. I say, okay, what dishes absolutely have to be on your family's Sabbath table or on, you know, your Rosh Hashanah table. So that's another way. And the last way is really, um, I cook with, with people. So I do a lot of you know, talks like this or cooking demonstrations. And wherever I go, I usually try to do a little reconnaissance in the community and see if there's someone I can cook with. So the last time I was in Seattle, I actually cooked with someone from the Sephardic community here. And she taught me how to make bulemas, which are kind of coiled pastries with, they can be filled with all sorts of things, but with, with spinach, that's the best way to learn because watching someone do it helps me know how to translate it for other people. Yeah. From this book, I would say the cinnamon almond babka is my favorite. It's, I mean, babka is, I feel like kind of the contentious dessert and that a lot of people have only had bad babka. It's usually dry or kind of made with artificial like vanilla and chocolate flavor and it doesn't really have that much going on for it. But in recent years, there's been sort of a babka renaissance, <laughs> at least in, in New York. And I think it's probably spread other places as well. This one is a little bit more of a traditional babka, um, but it has almond paste in it and almond extract and also ground, uh, flaked almonds on the top. So it's kind of a triple whammy. And it's really, it's just kind of like an almond croissant meets, meets babka. So I really like that one. And I also really love the honey apple cake. So I think I mentioned when I was reading the introduction that um, on Rosh Hashanah, you eat either honey cake or apple cake. They're both sort of have good wishes for the sweet year ahead and apples are round. So um, there's an idea of having like, you know, a, a, good, a good full round year. But I was like, why can't you just combine apple cake and honey cake? So I, I, sw I squashed them together. <laughs> um, and I think that it was kind of a fun little, little mashup. Yeah. So do you think what makes uh, Jewish food Jewish is the stories and the rituals, or are there any ingredients that you see, like, repeated? Yeah, yeah. The question is sort of what makes Jewish food Jewish. Um, it's a question that I get a lot um, and that I don't have the definitive answer for, but because, you know, a lot of Jewish food is actually, uh, I mean, I know the word appropriation is, is a, a loaded word, but really like Jews have eaten the foods of their neighbors um, throughout history. And that's true of basically everywhere. Um, and then they've changed them a little bit to make them kosher or to, you know, kind of comply with the, with the other like laws within, within uh, Jewish tradition. Um, and the reason a lot of these foods have become Jewish is because Jews have brought them when they were either moved or kicked out of wherever they were living, often kicked out and brought them to their new place, and then they become associated with Jews. Like, for example, borscht. If you go to Ukraine, 
borscht is not a Jewish food. Borscht is an everyone food. But in New York and in America, it's thought of often as a Jewish food because Jews help to bring it here. So that, that happens over and over. Mm -hmm. So that's a roundabout way to sort of say, for me, what, what makes food Jewish is it's a food that has found its way into the fabric of Jewish life and into Jewish culture and into Jewish rituals and holidays. So it's, you know, it, a food can be Jewish and not be exclusively Jewish, if that makes sense. So, but yes, if it's something that shows up on holiday tables or Shabbat tables, or if it's something that is like often served at um, a community event, like a wedding or whatever, those, those to me are the foods that can be called Jewish. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah. What must be on your Sabbath table? Oy, um, <laughs> so one of the things that I think is really interesting that's kind of happening now is um, people are merging Ashkenazi and Sephardi and Middle Eastern foods all on the same table, right? Like in generations past, if you were from Hungary, you ate Hungarian foods for your Sabbath table or whatever, and that was that. And if you were from Tunisia, you ate Tunisian foods, and, and that was that. But um, there's a lot more kind of culinary mixing. So on my table, I would definitely you know, have some kind of like roast chicken or, um, you know, some kind of like roasted meat, but my sides would probably be more on the Sephardic side because Sephardic food tends to be a little fresher, a little more vegetable heavy, um, because it was from a, war a warmer climate, right? Where like vegetables were, were more available. So I often do some kind of like, you know, roasted beets with cumin and um, lemon zest or preserved lemon, that kind of a thing. In the Little Book of Jewish Appetizers, I have a hummus that has become a huge, like, I, I make it all the time. It's a, a smoky sweet potato hummus. Um, so it's basically regular hummus. It's tahini and chickpeas and lemon and olive oil and all that. But then you, you blend in roasted sweet potatoes and a little bit of smoked paprika. Um, so it just has that little kick of sweetness and spice um, and smokiness that kind of sets it apart. So I do that one a lot. Oh, and I also love playing around with challah. I, in, in modern Jewish cooking, I have a recipe for, I think it's pumpkin, pumpkin apple butter challah. So there's pumpkin in the dough, and then you actually, you roll out the dough and you spread it with apple butter, like as if you were making a babka, and sprinkle on um, chopped apples, and then you roll that up and coil it. Or you could braid it if you wanted, but I coil it, and that's that's a really fun one. Oh, and I also, sorry, now they got me talking. Um, I started making birches, which is German challah. Um, which is actually, some people call, know it as Wasserhalle or Waterhalle. Um, it's made without eggs, so it's also a really good um, vegan challah for folks who, who are vegan. Um, and instead of eggs, it actually uses mashed potato um, to soften the dough. And in some ways, it's, it's the traditional, it's like their first challah because the, what we think of as braided challah actually originated um, with a, okay, I'm going to blow your minds. <laughs> maybe you guys know this story, maybe not. But it started with, well, up until like the 16th century, there was no shape for challah, right? It was just like a ceremonial fancy bread that you would make, and it didn't have a particular shape. But starting in like the 16th century in Germany, Jews adapted a German solstice bread that was braided to look like the hair of a witch, like a solstice witch named Bircha or, or Holly. She had two different names, and you can hear the name Hala in Holly. But so her hair was kind of braided, think like Medusa or whatever. And so the Jews, they, they kind of left the, 
the solstice part behind and kept the shape of the bread. Um, it's kind of hilarious that like our, our central ritual Sabbath bread is based on a pagan ritual, but I, 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 I kind of love that. Um, so, but they, they made it with, with, with potato. And in, in Germany, um, challah is called birches or bircha. Yeah, even, even today, if you find someone who's like familiar with old school German traditions. So that was maybe more than you wanted, but. <laughs> yes, one more. What's sort of the focus of, of each? Uh, really, they all try to tell the story. They try to tell stories. And they're, I'm, I feel like I'm a journalist first and a, a food writer second. Um, I mean, at this point, I feel like it's 50-50, but like my real heart and soul is in the stories. So for me, like the head notes are the, I'm someone who reads cookbooks like, like books. So for me, the head notes are the most important part. I mean, obviously you want the recipes to work and I work very hard to make that happen, <laughs> but I want people to really get a sense of what, what they're eating. Um, so yeah. And they're, they're all different in that they have different focuses, but that's kind of the through line between all of them. Yeah. Thank so, you so much. And thank, thank you, you Leah, for coming. Yay. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Many thanks to Leah Koenig for visiting us. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of The Little Book of Jewish Sweets and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, Visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.